Thank you very much for tuning in to another episode of In the Sheds on Code with Kingy, where for this corridor I am joined by former Otago and Northland representative and founder of Rugby Bricks, Peter Breen. Now for those of you who are unfamiliar with what Rugby Bricks is, in a nutshell it's an online based platform that uses video tutorials to help educate rugby players as to how they are to best perform core rugby skills. Peter has also used his expertise in the goal kicking space to help produce some of the world's leading kicking tees, which are used by the likes of Josh Iwani, Reese Hodge and Matt Tamua. So over the course of this conversation, we cover everything from Peter's rugby career, how Rugby Bricks got started, its growth, as well as the doors that it's opened along the way, which now includes coaching. For those of you who finish up this podcast and are interested in finding out a little bit more about Rugby Bricks, you can find all of Peter's content at rugbybricks.com. But without further ado, I'll let you guys have a listen to our long-winded yarn. Yeah, man. Um, but anyway, thank you very much for jumping on, bro. Uh, like I mentioned in my email, um, obviously, look, we've got a lot of time on our hands, and I've been following your content uh, for probably close to 18 months now. Cool, man. And when you launched your podcast, I got a bit of an insight into, obviously, who you were as a player and how this all came about, and I thought it was a really cool story, and yeah, I'm just looking to share as many rugby-related stories as I can, and you know, I'm just sort of reaching out to people, and a lot of people have said yes, a lot of people have said no, so... I'm cool, man. You said yes for it, so. <laughs> no, it's um, all good. Happy to, hear, happy to share the story. Um, I guess to start off with, bro, what I'm looking for there was also just ask about isolation because you're based in Australia and how's that all going? Yeah, man. So, pretty lucky at the moment. Like, we're, we're only at stage three in, um, in Melbourne at the moment. So, um, it's been pretty easy to kind of get out and about and get exercising. It, it feels like stage four because everything's shut and pretty locked down. But I think the the government was pretty worried about the economy crashing, especially over here in Australia, just with the sheer number of population. So, yeah, everyone's kind of following the rules and social distancing. But for me and and what we're up to, like just being able to train heaps and get in, get some projects going with rugby bricks and get get to work. So yeah, there's been a sort of a bit of a silver lining in it all. Yeah, yeah, definitely, bro. I was saying that to my mates as well because this is sort of a project I sort of had in the works um, for 18 months and I launched it at the start of the year and then obviously this stuff comes around and because what I was initially doing was reporting on Super Rugby and sort of just giving my own twist and so obviously with no rugby on I was like hey well what sort of content can I provide and I was like well I'll reach out to some of the boys that I know and see if they're willing to share their stories and because I know that everyone's got spare time it's not like they can sort of you know (laughs) work out of it and be like oh you know I got this one I got this so yeah for sure good time to be asking yeah, I've been real fortunate that um, they've been willing to do it, bro, because I know that some of them, they, they don't want to jump on a mic and sort of make a fool of themselves, or, you know, they're just some of the, some guys are just real quiet, bro, they'd rather just keep it humble, so... Yeah, yeah. I find that whenever I do it and, and speak to someone like it, there's always a really good feeling afterwards because you're almost kind of organising yeah, your thoughts and your story in your own head as you're kind of explaining it. So for any of those boys that are listening and a little bit nervous, like it's a it's a really good thing to do because it, um, you sort of realise, shit, I've actually been through quite a lot and got a bit of a story to tell. Exactly, and for the boys that I have interviewed, uh, a lot of them I have sort of made that super rapey level. And there are so yeah. many people that are interested in sort of what it takes to get there, the speed bumps they've had along the way, because I think a lot of the time people just look at these guys as almost like superheroes, and they've almost just been 
given a lot of yep. stuff their whole life, but in an actuality, a lot of them have had, you know, real niggly injuries, they've had to work through non-selection, and it's more sort of been their persistence and their drive to get there that's made the difference. And, totally yeah. agree, yeah. But um, we'll start off with, with you, bro. I know that you're a, an Otago boy, and how you started playing rugby. Yeah, man, so I um, I didn't start playing rugby till sort of my last year, second last year of school mainly. I was always um, basketball and cricket were my two main sports. So um, a lot of my mates were playing rugby and then um, just kind of got asked to come along to training and got thrown into the midfield, which I really enjoyed. Played a few few inter-schools and, and whatnot, but um, that was kind of my first crack. And then with that, went all right and had a few secondary schools trials just for South Island stuff and then got asked to come come down to Otago and, and join the academy, which was a really good start, mainly just because the academy sort of trained with the Highlanders and in the Otago team, so you're kind of rubbing, rubbing shoulders the whole time with, with the big boys, which was a really good good way to start. What the heck, so you just sort of took to rugby like a fish to water? Yeah, I suppose like I was always pretty pretty athletic. Like my main, like I sort of said, my main sports were basketball and cricket, so I was already fully into sport but yeah the sort of the easy position was to go go play 12 it was kind of midfield's quite a quite a straightforward role really and then sort of started there and then over a few years was like oh i'd love to give first five a crack and sort of lead and drive i played sort of point guard shooting guard and basketball so sort of that getting you know ball player and setting people up um, really appealed to me which is why i was keen to jump into 10 and and have a crack well that's so interesting because like I think from a rugby player's perspective or someone who's sort of been around the game his whole life, 10's like the last position you sort of want to give a crack if you haven't <laughs> played the game your whole life, bro. So, but I guess like you said, you, you've had that natural sort of sporting ability and being a playmaker in a different sport, I can I can see the appeal. So Yeah, okay, so, it's definitely, a, I see that a lot of youngsters like, especially in young rugby where the guy playing 10's rugby IQ isn't that high but everyone on the team's expecting him to be um, him or her to be so smart and clever I reckon they get a they get a lot of pressure put on them from an early age well I always found it was almost like your best player would play 10 because that was that was the position that would get the ball the most so you didn't yeah, have to wait for, sure. for it on the wing or you didn't have to wait for it at 10 so it's like yeah I get my hands on the ball and you sort of do what you want totally agree and so Obviously, you get into your rugby, and so did you have to give up your basketball? Uh, I played a little bit, but then, yeah, just the crossover and time and commitment was was too heavy. So, yeah, just was able to, to sort of focus on the rugby and, and play that, which was good because it was, I always try to do something really well rather than two things half-assed. So yep. um, it was good to kind of commit to rugby and learn the game. It was tough. Um, picking up on on some of the things but obviously growing up in, in New Zealand and following rugby it's pretty easy to get into it and the amount that's on TV so yeah it was pretty quick learning. And so like you said you get an academy contract in Otago and then what, what were your goals from there and did you do any bits on the side outside of rugby as well? Yeah, so it wasn't yeah it wasn't a, a contract. There was no money when when I was definitely going through academies, no PDU contracts or anything. So um, I was working full time. Actually, started just down the road at Woolworths, working packing shelves and following the rugby dream and and having a crack. So you sort of in the academy, play club rugby, play the odd sort of Otago development game or Highlanders development, and kind of just work your work your way through but I was definitely a slow process like I um I definitely found when I got there there was just 
a pretty big backlog of 10 and, and sort of quickly worked out that I was pretty far off where, where I needed to be to sort of start playing minor 10 cup rugby, yeah. And because you ended up playing for North Otago as well through that provincial... Yeah, like, nice, man. Yeah, played for the Turbo, so that was that was a good learning as well. Like came back and went to Otago, played city rugby and played uh, Otago B, and then didn't make Otago. So there was the opportunity to come come back and play for um, obviously my hometown, Omaru and North Otago, and um, and, and the Heartland Cup. So that was really really good fun because you you get to play with some some really experienced players. There's a lot of sort of people that have been in that grade for for almost 15, 20 years sometimes. So you, you pick up a lot of knowledge and some really good players and hard rugby and it's sort of a nice little stepping stone, yeah. You talk about having missed out on the Otago top side and sort of, I would have been like Air New Zealand Cup at that time, eh? Uh, I might have been um, ITM. I think. ITM, no. it's, it's gone through so many different names there, eh? it's hard to keep it, track of Yeah, yeah. But and I was so, definitely there when it, when it changed over, yeah, to Mitre 10. Yeah. And so, obviously, there was, like you said, there was a log jam at 10, and you would you, you quickly would have realised that it was going to take a hell of a lot of hard work to work your way yeah. up the chain. So, you know, where did you go from there after missing out initially? Um, I, I definitely just hung around, so, and that was probably the the key to it all. Like, I, I missed out twice, and then missed out my third time when I was 22. And so I had a lot of friends that were like, oh, well, my study's done. Um, I'm, I'm not getting a crack with rugby, so I'm just going to leave and go travelling or, or do something else. But I just decided that I'd come this far, that I needed to, to hang around and give it, a, give it another crack. And I suppose like what you sort of said at the intro about guys missing out on selection and selection issues, I reckon it doesn't really matter what the team is, whether, whether you're trying to play for the All Blacks or trying to play your under 14 team in, in a random country town like those same feelings of missing out and non-selection and all those things that go through your head are, are the same for every team and so that was kind of what I had to go through and then um, had a really good club season Tony Brown kind of rocked up he was, he was um, massive in my development and actually owning that 10 role in IQ so things went well and then got a crack and me and Hayden Parker sort of with the two tens for, for the next year, which was great. He's a wizard, eh, Tony Brown? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he is. He's um extremely smart person. He's, uh, I think everyone who kind of plays for him always has the same type of opinion. Like he's, uh, the way that he coaches and comes across and has a lot of trust in you and then gives you the opportunity. Yeah, you definitely feel like he's got your back with everything, but then also guides you through the process as well. Because yeah. I remember you mentioning that he, because obviously I follow all the stuff that you did with the kicking teasing, because you were a, a high key, high T kicker initially, and then he changed you to the low one, there. No, nah, it was the opposite. So I was, um, yeah, the opposite. So I was on a low T um, off that Dan Carter green one, the really, really low one that, that Carter used. Um, yeah, everybody used it, bro. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of the how they, like him and Johnny Wilkinson just influenced a whole generation of, of low yeah. T, T kickers. And, you know, guys like Bodie and Owen Farrell are now, everyone's just wanting to kick mm. like them, so so they're off the, the high tees. Um, but anyway, yeah, like when I shanked a kick, um, I really shanked a kick off the low tee. You sort of like spiral the ball off the tee to the left. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Brownie, Brownie had sort of already gone through that with Hayden, and he's like, hey, we'll give this a try. 
give me give me two weeks of commitment stay on this tee for two weeks and then we'll make a decision and yeah it was the best decision like within a week I was kicking so much better and more consistent and um and that was the beauty of brownies coaching is like um and that's where I, what I try to take is there's a thousand things that you could coach but he just gives you two things to work on for two weeks and then we'll talk in two weeks and see how you're getting on with it like he sort of has that real simple approach yeah, unreal okay so you talk about um obviously having that wicket club season and then you finally crack the team how rewarding was it for you having not you know seen your friends all take off and being like hey you know like this is what happens when you stick at something and persist with it yeah, it was massive because, I mean, there was guys that I was in the academy with, and the academy's not big, it's sort of like 15, 20 guys, and like some of them had already been signed for, you know, one or two seasons, so they had already got in there, and so you almost kind of feel like you're the odd one out when you're, you're still there and not playing and not even got a contract, and it, it actually gets a little bit embarrassing, and so when I finally got that call after three years in a row of getting the no and, and finally getting the yes like it was it was massive yeah because it was um it was all I'd focused on for for sort of four years and then to finally get in there and make the dream come true I was I was wrapped eh? there's definitely a few tears yeah for, for sure uh who did you make your debut against um I want to say man I can't even remember that's a great question <laughs> um I should know but um I was probably I was probably that nervous I was on the bench I know that much Nah, I'm not even going to guess because I'll get it wrong. I'm going I'm I'm to find that information today. I suppose that just shows you, man, like I was, I was just that stoked to be there. It didn't matter who the hell we were playing. I was just happy to be, to be in the team. So, yeah. <laughs> so, you, so how long were you in Otago for? Played for four seasons. Yeah, so four seasons and then went up and played for, for Northland for, for two seasons but what yeah the, the the four seasons in otago was special because we had forsyth bar which which obviously is the the stadium in new zealand with the roof on it and like it was a joke every time we walked in there for a captain's run or or to play that afternoon like you walk in there and the, the grass is carpet no wind roof on top like it was pretty pretty special um pretty special to to get that reward and so when you went to northland was it just a a matter of like was it just another player that had come through and taken your spot or were you looking for a change as well yeah so young young Fletcher Smith had come through with with Otago and then and then Hayden was there as well so I was thinking well this the new coach likes Fletcher Hayden's obviously a gun so I'm going to be probably not even getting any game time so um, and I'd already had a, had, a, had a good season with Otago and kind of had that 10, 10 jersey. Um, so I was just, you know, I was getting to that age where I was like, I have to be playing. I want to I wanna try and make a super squad. The Blues were pretty light at 10. So, um, yeah, went up to Northland and, and ran the cutter up there, which was fantastic. Like, And even just moving and getting into a new city in New Zealand and, and loved my time in Whangarei and, and getting around the culture and, and seeing a, an almost different different New Zealand, which was, which was really cool and helped me grow definitely as a person and a player. So loved, loved my time up at the Tunnies. Mm-hmm. So did you play club rugby up there as well or did you go after the club season in Otago? No, I played club rugby. That was sort of part of the part of the deal was to get up there and and um, play club rugby and be involved with all the 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 trainings and preseason. Um, 
and yeah you definitely learn what club rugby is when you go play in Northland club rugby <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah it's pretty pretty hearty in some of the club fields you play on and league games before and um yeah pit bulls on the side <laughs> on the sideline it's uh it's pretty hearty so um yeah and even some of the boys you play with it's just hilarious so um yeah you gotta have pretty thick skin especially when you're the the new white first five that's been signed coming up <laughs> um, well, that would be a drastic change eh? coming from the south yeah yeah so that was um it was pretty cool the first few years but we had a pretty good team which made it enjoyable club rugby um and, and we won the comp two years in a row which was pretty cool so nice to it was a good experience were you fortunate enough to um not have to work while you're playing rugby or did you have a side gig as well yeah so for for those two years up in northland i just focused on on rugby i i all i wanted to try to do was make the blues it didn't happen but i was just going that hard with training and, and focused and and whatnot but in otago i was personal training and then for my last two years just did house renovations so me and me and the wife uh, would purchase a house I'd, I'd do it up and and then um and then we'd get it revalued and then get another one and so we managed to do that for a few times, which was really good. So love that. Oh, you're a man of many trades. Good for the hands on the tools as well, eh? <laughs> yeah, having a crack, always busy. Okay, and then you mentioned um, talking about obviously making super rugby. And that's one thing I haven't been able to ask the other boys that I've interviewed is just how tough it is for... And I don't don't take this as a slight bro, but for someone who's made the Mitre 10 Cup level, but then sort of making that next jump because... If you're not part of a super squad, because when you're in a super team, you're playing from, well, you're training from December through to about, what, what is it, June? And then you have yeah. the Mitre 10 Cup. So, and as someone who's trying to make that jump, you're trying to pretty much knock off somebody who's in that squad who's already playing at that level. Like, how hard is that? And how hard is it to have that motivation to do all the extras during the club season when there's just all those other guys that are already almost getting paid to do it? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question because it's, I, I was, I was in the different positions throughout my whole career. Like I was down in Otago and, and playing playing really well, but then like say the Landers would have like Marty Banks, Lima Sopawanga, Hayden Parker, a couple of other guys that could float in and out of 10. Um, and so you sort of feel, you, you're almost waiting for an opportunity or an injury or to get called in is, is how you get your first crack a lot of the time especially for me being slightly older like you've either got to almost be a bit of a young gun um, coming through and you know 1920 with with a huge amount of talent that a, a super side could see they can build you and grow you and then heading up to Northland trying to have a crack and that exact same thing happened to me so there was um, there was sort of three first five spots um, I Terry Black was there who was the other 10 um, there was another 10. Um, and then they decided to go with Bryn Gatlin, who was um, a, a youngster then playing for, for North Harbour, and I think he was sort of only 20. So it was a 20-year-old Bryn who um, was going good, or was a, sort of an older 26-year-old player, which was me. And um, generally the super sides go for that young player. So it's tough, man. I, I, I never got the opportunity to to get a, get a run or get a crack but I guess what I'm proud of is just the, the effort and, and how hard I worked to, to try and get the opportunity and, and, and I guess that's what I'm proud of is that I can sort of say well I was ready to go but it just didn't happen. Did you have any uh, contract offers to go overseas? 
Uh, had a look, but again, because for me it was tough because I, I sort of wanted a contract that was going to be um, good financially, not not really just an opportunity to go overseas because of what we were doing back home with house house renos and trying to sort of set up business and, and stuff like that. So if I was going, it was going to have to be for, for good money, but because I didn't have Super Rugby on my CV, nothing was coming. Japan was kind of turning into like an ex-All Black type place to go or ex-Springbok or Wallaby, so it was getting harder and harder to get in there. Um, so yeah, didn't didn't get anything that was financially worth going. There's a few opportunities to, to go on, on sort of just experience deals, but again for where I was at I, I kinda wanted to stay put and set up set up business and start start doing other things. For sure. Okay, so you finish up your, your stuff with the Tanifa and how long between when you finished up and the launch of rugby bricks or did you already have rugby bricks in mind as you were playing as well? Yeah, so I actually started it in um, halfway through the Tani season. So that that's when it first started, started making videos because I wasn't working, had a bit of time and, and had the resources, you know, balls and fields and, and, and kit. So the idea sort of came up and, and started filming. So I made made my first video with a with a soccer pole and a you know, Velcro on the back of a phone case and, <laughs> and just started. Um, that was that was how it all all, all begun um, in tunnies. And I, I know I know rugby players are pretty brutal, like within their social circles, bro, and the team circles. Yeah. Did you get much stick of it, like when you initially started it? Yeah, man. Like the um, oh, it's funny because everyone starts that way, and like it, definitely a few comments here and there, and um, people talking a bit of shit. But I guess I think people kind of knew what I was doing was was valuable and. They could see that you know my effort was there. Like I was, I was trying to, to to get something started. So like yeah, you could mock it and, and talk shit straight away. But then actually, when you have like a yarn with someone, then everyone sort of comes around pretty quick. But I definitely remember like Rene Ranger and the Prior Boys. Um, <laughs> they they were having a laugh straight away at it. Um, but they could definitely see the value. And it's cool talking to them now. They're like, man, good shit. Like we we gave you shit, but it's uh, it's paying off now. Yeah, I reckon. So you launch it, and because originally you focused solely on goal kicking, right? Uh, yeah, kicking, just kicking and passing was my first two focuses, and now it's kind of. I knew that to to sell kicking tees, it would be it'd be easy to have an audience and then try sell rather than just start with the sell. And I sort of picked that up from a, a guy Gary V over in America. He's a pretty massive influencer. And he, he just talked about building an audience and giving away everything for free and content for free before um, before he, he calls it jab, jab, right hook. So you're chucking out all these jabs and then one day you sort of throw your right hook in and ask for, for the sell. Again, for those of you that don't know, we're talking about rugby bricks. It's, it's Peter's, uh, well, it's not even a side hustle anymore. You know, it's this, this big um, sort of skill tutorial thing that he's built through the likes of social media. And so you, obviously, you start off with the idea. It goes through the sort of. That's probably a good thing to touch on, bro. What were sort of the teething pains for you, and how was there ever a point when you started it where you actually felt like giving up? Uh, not really. So I guess the the teething stuff is is just figuring out what works and what is what is a good bit of content and what isn't. Um, what gets good engagement and and what doesn't. So. 
I guess the the main thing is is like if I had if I had ten followers, how many of these ten people would actually find my content valuable? Like they're within my niche, they like kicking, they like rugby, they like passing, um, and they want to try learn. So, and I guess that's that's what I've kind of stayed true to is um, is like whatever content you're seeing is valuable for for your interests. And I think I guess that's where I see a lot of people go go wrong is instead of sort of being entertaining or educational it's just random stuff that's just trying to get the odd clicks for likes so it's always been that way and sort of and I'll, I'll always try to remain true to that whether however many followers it is it's got to it's got to be valuable for whoever's watching otherwise you know it's it's probably not worth following yeah. now was there a was there a turning point for rugby bricks or was there like almost like an aha moment or like one video that sort of captured such a big audience that you know, or was it more a consistent growth over time? Yeah, definitely consistent growth. There was definitely uh, moments that made a lot more credible. Credible. <laughs> you always get stuck on that word. Um, Aaron Smith, he he, um, he, he was big. There was a, a, a time where, like, I've always been consistent. Um, there hasn't been too many days where we haven't posted something. But... Um, uh, when when I had my session with Aaron Smith, I went down. He just launched a new F forty five, and and sort of just like what you've done, you've sort of reached out and just asked the question. And I think that's so key is literally just asking. But anyway, he he was keen to. I said, bro, I'd love to um, to come and just learn and and literally just ask you a shitload of questions. And my wife Jay had a GoPro and and literally followed us around F forty five for um, almost an hour and a half and both me and Aaron sort of just geeked out when it came to skills and chat and, and World Cup box kick, this drill, that drill. And yeah. um, and as soon as we'd filmed that, like we had some real gold. And I, I guess um, I have a lot to thank for Aaron because he, he sort of made aware that I was sort of on the same level as like an international halfback and then made my coaching stuff that I was trying to get across a little bit more credible credible because of who he is and, and what he does on the rugby field, yeah. I'm quite surprised. I watched that podcast that you did with your business partner earlier in the week. And yep. I remember you talking about um, sort of players and the skill development. And I'm quite surprised that a lot of players haven't sort of cottoned on to the idea of, doing the sort of stuff that you're doing themselves i know that i know it takes a lot of time but if you're someone like Bowden bear and you start something up everyone wants to know what Bowden bear does to get better yeah and there's and like you said you've obviously like you've created or you've catered to like a niche market and you've got this audience now where you are just consistently churning out content but like you said the, the credibility of being a all black or a super rugby player is invaluable yeah. And sort of similar to what I'm doing with my podcast stuff, like, yeah, it's one thing for me to get up on a mic and, and you know, talk about what I want, but the stuff that's going to get a lot more traction is from Super Rugby players, from All Black, so. But... Yeah, I, I guess I guess just on that, like, and I guess one thing that I, I, I know from being in the environment is that most people that are in, in the Super Rugby environment are still really nervous and they're still not really confident people and they're confident on the rugby field and I guess that's where they feel safe and confident but 
you know, they've got coaches watching over them, mentors, legends walking around the same building. Like they don't, they don't actually have that persona of I'm the man. They actually have the persona of shit. I'm just like keeping my keeping my mouth closed. I just want to try to stay here for as long as possible, keep my contracts coming. So, I guess when when you when someone uh, puts their head up, it's that real tall poppy thing in, in New Zealand, especially for players. Like as soon as someone um, decides, oh, I'm actually going to start showing everything and talking and, and trying something different that all you guys aren't doing um i reckon there's a lot of people that are, are too nervous to to stick their neck out because of exactly what happened to me you, you get a little bit of shit and, and people start mocking you and stuff but i was sort of able, resilient enough and finished up playing and now um able to sort of have a crack as a coach you talk about that tall poppy stuff uh tall poppy syndrome bro and i think it's one thing that before i launched my podcast that I was real fearful of, you know, you sort of, you're afraid that, you know, no one's going to respond to it or people are just going to think you're lame. And I think like what I found and was really encouraging was the amount of people that actually sort of, you know, come to you privately and sort of they they pat you on the back for having a go, bro. Cause like you said, like you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take, right? So you don't want to like, you know, get down the line and you're stuck in like a dead end job or you're doing something that you don't enjoy. And be like, man, I wish I'd done this earlier. Or, you know, somebody else comes along with your idea and you've been like, bro, I had this idea ages ago. When a lot of the time, if you just take that initial plunge or even like you set that goal and you launch it, that way you have to become accountable for it. So, yeah, yeah couldn't yeah, agree. Been... Couldn't agree more, man. Like, totally. It's exactly what, what I've done as well. Is, and you almost sort of turn into a little bit of a, like, I'm kind of known now, especially like at rugby fields like as as that rugby bricks guy like i'm not so much peter breen like i'm that guy from rugby bricks so Mm -hmm. um it's almost a nice um persona and person to 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 and i actually meant that mentioned this to aaron smith like he was thinking about starting a podcast i was like man just sort of come up write down on a bit of paper sort of 10 things like what does what does aaron smith sound like on a podcast like professional clean organized relaxed and sort of as soon as you you make up your mind on what that person what rugby bricks coach sounds like um it's real easy to to switch into that mode yeah it was one thing that's helped me a lot yeah okay we'll get we'll get back to the rugby bricks stuff now um so you you launch it you get a bit of traction you work with the likes of aaron smith but where did the whole creating your own your own tea idea come from yeah so I guess that was always, when I started it, it was always in my mind, like I wanted to to have a kicking tee, even before I made any videos, the first thing, like I knew that I wanted to have a kicking tee, and so developed the audience, and then both me and Hayden Parker were using um, a pretty old school um, Steedon tee, it was, it, was, it was actually a league tee that a lot of the league boys use, but Tony Brown sort of saw value in us using it. And I, I just was wanting to sort of recreate the similar tee, same height, um, make it a little bit more modern looking and, um, and sort of sell the story of Maiden Design in New Zealand because a lot of the other kicking tees were becoming quite cheap and nasty and, and um, getting made in places like China just on volume. So with some of the marketing stuff I looked into was all about the story behind a product and, and selling the mindset, the idea. It's why we came up with the artwork out learn thing because now all of a sudden when you use the product, like that's the persona behind it. So yeah, the first kicking tee, and you may have watched that Instagram story where I talk about the very, very first kicking tee that was a bit of a failure, the brush kicking tee. 
that didn't work. Um, yeah, so the, the RB88 was the very first uh, thermoplastic mold we got done. And um, yeah, like it, it's actually going off in Japan because of what Hayden does off it. And they all want to be Hayden Parker and kicking like him in Japan. So it's, it's selling really well in Japan, actually. It's cool. How did you even go about like creating something? Because it's one thing to be like, yeah, I've got this idea. And then did you just, did you know someone that manufactured, you know, that sort of plasticky stuff? Or did you actually have to go out and do a lot of homework? Yeah, so I I did look around, but I worked for a company, John Leslie, in, um, in Otago. The, the company's finished up now, but it was called Leslie Rugby. They did mouth guards, so I knew that a guy from Mosgiel in Dunedin who was able to make a plastic mould for, for mouth guards. So I was thinking, well, if this guy can make moulds to do that, then why can't he... You know make a kicking tea mold and we can produce kicking tea so went out there and and i guess that was the beauty of working with a guy in new zealand who loves rugby who understands the whole gig um can can sort of come up with his own ideas um, which is why we've been, been able to sort of create five kicking tees now is because the process is so easy and positive. Um, I, I'm thinking if I was trying to deal with someone who chi- in China who never kicked a ball or understood like why this thing's so important, it wouldn't have happened so quickly and, and the development and the designs wouldn't be so cool. So yeah, Jason and, and, J- and JTEC Plastic and, and Mosgiel has been massive with that because anytime we have a meeting, like we just skyrocket and... and and end up um, coming up with designs and and whatnot um, really really quickly. Now I don't I know you wouldn't want to give all of your science and all of your sort of blueprints away, but you talk about you go into real detail about the certain heights of your cooking teas and how they differentiate and yeah. you know sort of opening up the sweet spots and all that sort of stuff. How did you go about finding that stuff out? Yeah, so just product research, like I've got a bag of of kicking tees over here of all different brands and different heights and and I guess that's why why we've got the different ranges that we've got. There's probably not um, the numbers like one of the kicking tees, the mid-cut vortex is like 92 mils, like it could be 94, it could be 90, but we sort of just decided that it'd be nice to step down from 112 to 92 to 72. And I guess similar to the process I went through when, when Tony Brown asked me to change tees, like it wasn't so much that the tee was 88 mils, it was the fact that, right, it's it's always going to be 88 mils, um, and now I'm just going to train my body and technique to, to know that that consistent height is what I'm always going to be hitting off. And just player preference as well, like, and I guess that's what, what kickers have to do is work out how well they can kick the ball off each tee and then go from there. And now you manufacture all your stuff, all your teas in New Zealand, and you were, you're doing all your house renovation stuff in New Zealand. So what made you pack your bags and head over to Melbourne? Yeah, good question. So my wife and I had always wanted to, to come to Melbourne and, and always heard really good things from people that had travelled over here. I finished that last year with the Tunnies, found out that I wasn't um, going to get a super contract from anywhere or overseas, and um, and I was just done. Like I'd, I'd put six years of effort into New Zealand rugby and academies and training. It's kind of all I really knew. And Jay, my wife, got a job opportunity to come over here in physio. So I was like, yep, I'll come with you and, and just started personal training when I got here. And yeah, love it, man. It's it's a, it's a fantastic place for us to live for a few years. 
um, the amount of sport that's on. I love cricket and basketball and now footy, AFL. Um, it's a crazy place to live. So we live pretty close to the MCG and the other stadiums, so pretty lucky to be able to just pop along the road and go to world-class games and, and stuff. It's, it's fantastic. How good. And so you just continue with the rugby book thing, and do you think that had you stayed in New Zealand, rugby books would have got to where it's at, or do you think that the Australian market and working with uh, some of the super players over in Australia has almost fast-tracked your growth? great question i'm actually not too sure like what what would have happened i think what what's been nice is being able to it was great to get over to to melbourne and just have no noise like rugby's the probably the ninth or tenth sport over here so for a start like no one really understood what i was doing like you explained to an, a few aussies especially in victoria like isl kicking tees like they don't they didn't even know that rugby players <laughs> used a tee on the field so having to actually explain like what a kicking tee is to a lot of people was was quite it was quite nice to just be away and just being able to sort of pump content out from distance um I definitely do put a lot of credit in sort of getting a, a Wallaroos gig pretty early on and, and getting involved with Australian rugby and, and um, being able to sort of get intros and be in the room um, with people like Matt Tamore and, and Reese Hodge and, and get started that way. I think it was it complemented the work that I was doing with the um, New Zealand rugby players along with Australian rugby players as well. Yeah, so I, I think it's been great for me because... I think I've told this story a couple of times now, like I got invited along to a Rebels training when I came over here and I was actually as, as a player because I played one club season here and on the same field was the Melbourne Storm, like they had one half of the field, we had the other half and so like Cam Smith and the, the Storm boys are throwing their stegans around, like we're right next to the MCG, Amy Park, Rod Lather Arena. There's like a, a Melbourne, the Melbourne Demons football clubs training on the field next to us. Like it was just, I was buzzing out because come from, you know, Logan Park in, in Dunedin, cold where no one's around. And all of a sudden there's cameras, paparazzi, spectators. And um, it's been really infectious for, for high performance and sport. It's been, it's been pretty awesome. So you talk about having worked with the likes of Matt Samora, Reese Hodge, a few of the Wallaroos. Was that door open through that training session, or was it? Did it come somewhere else? I actually uh, coached the got into coaching by coaching the Rebels nineteen boys team. So we went to um, AIS for the national tournament over here, coached them, and I think I um, I just came in with a lot of energy. Um, I was ready to go from a lot of the stuff that I'd learnt from from sort of being in the room with you know the tunnies and the blues for six weeks and the highlanders for a little bit of exposure and um yeah just come over there and i, I think probably what i put out there coaching wise was was what uh, hadn't been seen before so that gave me a really good reputation and then the opportunity with the Wallaroos came up and they said hey i think pete would be would be great for this role and bring a lot of energy so we yeah, got offered it and, and i was actually really taken back i was quite surprised that you know, I'd only just sort of thought about coaching and now all of a sudden I'm coaching a national team and, and um, yeah, I was pretty excited. <laughs> For sure. And so you talked about how you reached out to Aaron Smith initially to help create some more content. But by the stage you get into all, the, all these coaching gigs over in Australia, is it Matt Tamura approaching you or are you still going out of your way to approach these players and help work on their games? 
it's funny how it happens now because it's it's almost quite passive so especially with an instagram account like i i think i probably just noticed like any player like just like the odd photo oh matt timor is now following me um he might like react to an instagram story so it's actually like a um it's quite an easy intro but i've definitely i, I reached out to maddie because i think he's got a really op good opportunity for the wallabies to to lock down that 10 role and so i've, I've said to I, I reached out to him and said hey man like I've got some stuff that I know is going to help your game because I think if you get organised and understand sort of your your skill element to how you play 10 and your footwork and your, your quick transfer passing game, you'll be able to lock down that 10 jersey. So I reached out to him and he was keen. So, yeah, we've done, done a couple of sessions and, and spoke about a lot of things is, is how that one come up. And with Hodgie, it was like, hey, bro, I've got a, got a massive high tee that I want you to try bang some long kicks off. Um, and and he was keen so and with his boot it's a uh, pretty good exposure has he got the biggest boot that you've seen yeah the biggest boot i've seen live i reckon him and geordie barrett would be a pretty awesome kickoff the thing about hodgie is like he's a big dude I, I, um geordie's big too but like hodgie's just got these massive legs yeah it would be a hell of a kickoff him and geordie barrett how many well, what's the longest kick you've seen him do in practice probably like a oh, I didn't see it live but it was in South Africa I saw a video and he was just inside um, his own 22 so what? yeah and, and he yeah, just a couple of massive run up and just launched um, and Hodgie gets hot usually but yeah this ball just flew away so to be fair bro you, you hit 101 the other day bro, <laughs> <didn't you? laughs> yeah that's right it was um <laughs> so maybe you've got the biggest boot that you've ever seen before. yeah true it's probably me to be honest <laughs> <Nah>. <laughs> um, yeah no, that was that was some awesome editing from my guy <laughs> <laughs> just, out, just out of curiosity bro what's the longest kick you've attempted in a game uh, in, in a game no I yeah I actually talked to players about this a little bit I decided with like probably four years on my career to go and when I started getting really organized with my kicking I was like I'm not going to be a long range kicker so I just had a four step run up really tight technique so I think I probably I, I hit one from 50 with that with a little tailwind but like I consciously made the made the made the thought that I just wanted to have a real tight tidy technique and that's one thing I picked up from um, Hayden Parker actually is he was like bro just Mate, I don't kick anything from inside, from outside forty now, just because I just want to be straight, and it was it helped me a lot. Now I know that a lot of guys sort of emulate their goal kicking run ups off of famous people. You know, a lot of people try and reenact Dan Carter. They do yeah. the sit down like Johnny Wilkinson, and I noticed that you do like that thing with your legs when you cross it over. Where did that come from? Or how did you create your own routine? <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, I love that you're picking up on all these details, man. It's, you've done some good research. It's good. Um, I try, bro. I try. <laughs> yeah. So Dan Carter's like mucked up a whole generation because his his kick like approach is so steppy and um, so many different angles. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but and I I sort of got my stuff from Mornay Stain, the South African goal kicker. Mm -hmm. um, so he was very like so simple. Um, he he goes five steps back and then just approaches the ball no step backs no sideways nothing but yeah i with my little side step i do so i 
I, I come back on a 45 and then kind of go into like maybe 42 degrees. And the reason for that is I just, I felt like I keep pushing the ball right. That was the mistake I'd always make was just fading just past the, the right upright. So just that tiny little step in just gets me a little bit up the back of the ball and, and I can kick the ball straighter. So, But like with that, I, my advice is definitely mimic players. Like I, I've tried to get this across to a lot of the Wallaroos girls that I'm coaching now is they, they, they're not watching enough rugby. Like see how this guy kicks the ball, this girl kicks the ball. What do they do in their approach? Have a go. Does that feel good for me? I think you should always try and mimic your players, whatever position you're in. If you're a prop, then watch props and see how they do it. Yep. If you're a kicker, kicker, see how people kick the ball. And yeah, Quade Cooper got a lot of people putting their hands up like he does. And <laughs> <laughs> I think it's only good to to try it and feel it, and, and then make your own decision about what works. Yeah. Now you you talked about obviously the silver lining with this whole lockdown period being that. A lot of people have got a lot of free time and you talked about it on your podcast with your business partner about how this is the prime opportunity for people to go out and work on their game and you guys are putting out as much content as you can to pretty much motivate people to do it and give them the resources to learn so what sort of your aspirations for rugby bricks going forward and is there like a massive goal that you want to achieve within the next five to ten years uh, it's probably not, it's probably not a massive goal. What we're trying to create at the moment is we're wanting to d- develop uh, an app or um, definitely an app that people could use to almost be like a module based thing. So we're just trying to get information and videos organised so that if I want to work on my punt kick, then there's his TED module videos for you to work through, and you can go through and almost sort of get that. Um, get that gold star of going through that and, and actually understanding that information. So that's kind of where we're putting our energy at the moment. And um, and a bit like yourself, like we're sort of still in a lot of projects and, and organising what a lot of the products are. So passing programs, kicking programs, the podcast, keep keeping developing that. So at the moment, we yeah, I probably don't have a, a long-term goal. We're just trying to get as much noise and positivity around rugby bricks as, as probably in the, the, the more short-term. And I guess that's how my brain works a lot of the time, is more in project mode rather than looking too far ahead. And because you're doing all the coaching stuff as well, is it, obviously with that avenue being popped up, is that something else that you're looking to do career-wise as well? You sort of work your way up the coaching ranks? Yeah, and I guess that's that's one thing that's in my back of my head is that I, I know that I'm not going to have this amount of time. Um, like to say if I, I got a full-time coaching role with with any team, all of a sudden my time would be would be cut pretty short. So therefore, why this lockdown period and, and what we're trying to create is, okay, let's try to get as much organised as what we can so that we've got something that we can um, sell and, and, and make money from when all of a sudden I do get pulled and, and not able to spend the amount of hours we are of filming and just um, random sort of content. So I know that that's coming and I guess that's why um, why it's a nice place for us to be at the moment is let's build it and then be able to just kind of go other ways once it's, it's kind of built. One of the other things that I picked up on your in your podcast from earlier in the week was that you, you're also looking to sort of um, step outside of your comfort zone and expand your knowledge on parts of the game that you aren't so familiar with and you mentioned the line out. Had you... Yep paid much attention to perhaps obviously with living in Melbourne and AFL being such a big deal had you approached any 
AFL clubs to learn how they pump the ball because they, they they kick it differently to us. And like, have you looked into that sort of stuff as well? Yeah, one hundred percent. And um, and Mick Burns, the the old ex uh, kicking coach for the All Blacks, he um he learned a lot from from AFL. I think um and and probably I'll go geek mode a little bit here at the moment so with with AFL and with kicking they they basically chip the ball every kick that they do so um, if we think about like in rugby union the cross field kick um, so it's like a, a, a 40 meter kick max sometimes like 30 40 45 meter you're not actually putting that much you don't need that much power loaded you don't need much power to, to execute because in AFL they're constantly moving the ball and just passing the ball using their kicks they don't actually get they don't actually use their full range of extension at, at either side of the kick which means that they can be really front on really tight they they call it staying in the saddle so you just stay in sort of a a hunched position which is really tight and, and kick the ball that way so you can take stuff from that but it actually sometimes doesn't apply to to rugby when we're trying to get like a max distance clearance kick where you do need where it's a big advantage to kick the ball 50 meters because then it gets your your team downfield if that makes sense so i guess you you can take the stuff from from the crossfield kicks definitely and apply that but if you try to just teach someone to afl kick in rugby it doesn't really work because it's trying to achieve a completely different outcome interesting yeah because i I've done a bit of reading around someone like Nick Evans, and I know that he played a bit of AFL growing up. I think he mentioned how they sort of translated, but yeah, I thought I'd yeah. pose the question to you. Um, the um, the yeah. best thing on that is, is in around their game is the repetitions, and I guess that's where we miss out on our kicking reps because from as soon as those kids start playing footy, like they'll, they'll literally do 40 minutes of kicking drills a night, and that's the whole team. Whereas that you just would never ever see that in rugby because it's only Tell just me about it, uh, yeah yeah so it's, especially um, the forwards eh? they're just like bro we're like yeah can, you know as backs I remember just being in training and oh you know can we dedicate like half an hour to just you know like kicking and the yeah. forwards would just look at you and be like bro grow up yeah <laughs> do it in your own time mate <laughs> yeah exactly and that's the thing do it in your own time um, whereas over here like you go watch footy trainings man it is a thing of beauty like the drills that they do um, and like 10 players involved in kicking kicking drills it's um, it's pretty pretty unique and I guess a guy like Nick Evans when you get that many touches in your week on your foot like you learn how to kick a ball pretty quick yeah. okay bro I think that sort of wraps up all the stuff to that I wanted to cover with you bro um, and, but a couple of questions that I've had I know that you've worked with quite a few prominent rugby players who is the most skillful guy that you've worked with where you've just been like bro how does he deal with this yeah so Aaron Smith definitely like when you when you do a session with him and and, uh, and see how clean he is and how the cool thing with Aaron and he's almost quite unique is he understands the muscle memory behind what he does so even when we're warming up or doing ball drills like he'll just put the ball to the side and um, and do like box kicks without a ball or he'll do and just focus on getting up on his toe or he'll do like passing drills on one knee with no ball like it's literally just feeling his fingers feeling how his body weight transfers so he's been the coolest guy to to deal with and then um did that session up up in Auckland with Bowden Barrett and I was really impressed with just how how he's able to manipulate and control his body and adjust really quickly to, to sort of what I was throwing down. So 
yeah, obviously two of the two guys are the best in the world at what they do, but for a reason as well. What about someone like Quay Cooper, bro? Because he's sort of been making the rounds on social media with all the, <laughs> the gridiron throws. Like, did he, was he pulling that sort of stuff out when he was with Melbourne? Yeah, so we kind of just did, did some stuff at the end of his, his uh, team sessions. Um, so we kind of had 20-minute slots, so he wasn't doing too many trick moves. But the the good thing about Quaid, and I guess it's just the different personality types, is he's um, he's definitely big on feel. So just like, um, what does it feel like? Does he feel comfortable? And uh, I guess that's why he sort of broadened his arms thing, because he, he wanted to feel like he was sort of keeping his body over the ball and, and, and cue himself that way. But yeah, Quaid's just got so much natural talent, man. It comes pretty easy to him, skills, and he's um he's got a lot of time because of his silky skills, yeah. which is which is why he's benefited at, at ten. So who knows what what the future's going to hold for Quaid? It'd be good to see him back in Aussie rugby, but yeah, the door's kind of closing. Um, and then one of the the final things I like to do with anything uh, anyone that I interview is I've got a segment called Ten from the Bin. So yep. I've just got 10 questions for you, bro, and um, you just answer them as best you can for me, please. Cool, man. All right. So if Peter's chilling on a Friday or Saturday night and he's watching the footy or whatever, what beer or vessel does he have in his hand? Um, I'm into my craft beers now, a nice Kiwi one called Panhead. Um, it's a, it's an IPA, yeah, Panhead from, um, I think it's Marlborough or somewhere around there. Bro, it's actually up a hut, bro. It's a, it's a Is it? Yeah, yeah. Bang. There you yeah, go. I'm a supercharger man myself, but uh, ah, nice. <laughs> I don't mind an IPA. Uh, now, you've played in a few teams and you've coached a few teams, but who's the biggest coach's pet that you've ever been around? <laughs> um, coach's pet? Uh, it would actually be Hayden Parker as well. Him and um, We always called him Bra- um, Brownie Jr. because they were always just <laughs> together yarning and they were very, very similar. But, yeah, in a good way. Yeah, okay. Um, and this is going to apply now or back to your playing days. What's your must-do on a day off? Um, must-do on a day off? Definitely cafe, head to a cafe, have a nice chilled brunch. That, that's sort of my, my nice morning, man. Go for a walk and chill at a cafe for a bit. Right, uh, what's your least favourite fitness block? I love fitness. That's a hard question. It'd probably be do like it'd be something. It'd be more in the gym, like doing like a league thing, like a whole a whole massive set of Bulgarians or split squats or something like that. But I was always I always loved fitness. I was a border collie. <laughs> okay, yeah, not me yet. Um, <laughs> uh, favorite cheat meal. Um, I I hate to say it, but I didn't. I do enjoy the odd Maccas after. This was when I was playing. Like you just feel like something greasy and salty, so I did enjoy like some a burger and chips after a game. Is there a particular burger on the menu? Just Big Mac. I was pretty pretty straight Big Mac combo. I was happy as Larry. All right, wicked. Um, most regretful baller purchase. Um, I'll explain this one a little bit. So. Have you ever gone out and spent a whole lot of money on something and then like the next day or the, like the next week being like, bro, I should not have bought that? Yeah, this is very appropriate actually, bro. It was, it was a bit of podcast equipment. Um, we bought this, um, it was like 400 bucks or something. And um, it was like a like a DJ sort of studio booth one that you'd buy. Like if you had like four hard out microphones you could plug into it. 
and it was just a waste of money. All we needed was like a, a, a little connection thing that we could hook up to to a laptop. <laughs> so yeah, I was pretty annoyed at myself for that. I was like, that is the, I've only used it once and it was a waste of time. Oh, no good. <laughs> All right, uh, guilty music pleasure. Um, I'm a big Kanye West fan. Yeah, I'm Kanye all, all day. Uh, um, now I know you're married, so I've got to switch this one up. How did you meet your partner? Who initiated it, and how did you propose? <laughs> Crack up. So we um we actually went away on a basketball tour tour when we were twelve years old together. Um, and then uh, so that's where we first met, and then we were actually at the disco then. And then she, <laughs> this is a crazy story. So she was my first kiss at a disco when we were like twelve, thirteen, or whatever. And then disappeared for for each other's lives for like until we were twenty, and then we met up again when we were twenty, and then um, yeah, went from there, and now we're married. So there you go. Yeah. How'd you propose? Oh, true. Um, yeah, it was pretty good, man. Like it was her birthday. Um, we went down to have some shots at at the um at the gym, and I'd told all her family and friends to be waiting there, and then walked in. All the lights came on. She had a few challenges to do, and um, and then proposed that way. <laughs> Pretty Old cute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well done, it, was, it was cool. Now a lot of the boys haven't been able to answer this one honestly for me, um, but I'm hoping <laughs> that because you're done with your playing days, you might be all right. Who is the biggest grub you've played with and against? <laughs> Joe Ladder. I don't know if you know, remember Joe Ladder, but he played for the he played for the Highlanders and then um and in Otago as well. But he's just a, a typical country boy that, um, that that doesn't really have a line, a moral line. <laughs> and um, on and off the field, he'd be the biggest grub. Do you have any stories? Was, it, was, it, was any of that inflicted on you or did you more so watch it from afar? Nah, I was a spectator. Um, yeah, just whatever. Yeah. I'll let your imagination create on that. But he was just a, a, a standard country boy that um, loved getting naked and would just do whatever. <laughs> I'll, I'll sort of switch up this last one as well bro I'll do a start bench cut here. so you got to start someone I'll give you three guys you got to start oh, yeah, one yeah, yeah. you got to bench one yeah. and then you got to cut one cool man Andrew Murdens Dan Carter Bowden Barrett <laughs> yeah right um, I'd go with, I'd, oh, shit. I'd go with Carter to start have to and then, yeah, Murdens is going to get cut. Bodie's on the bench because Bodie, um, Bodie can come on and win another World Cup for us. I like it, bro. I like it. Sweet, man. Um, that wraps it up, bro. Thank you very much for taking some time out of your day to have a yarn with me. I really appreciate it, bro. I love the work you're doing. And, yeah, hopefully we get some more people outside working on their skills and you'll be in rugby breaks. Uh, thanks man it's always um I was, I'm always sort of keen to try and share the story and get the word out there so I appreciate um what you're doing and, and well done on, on getting your project started it's the it's the hardest thing so thanks for reaching out appreciate it Peter I'll catch you later thanks man